I'm Carol Cohn, and welcome to Purpose 360, the podcast that unlocks the power of purpose to ignite business and social impact. Today, I promise you that you will be mesmerized by the conversation with a former colleague and friend, Alex Thompson, who is the chief communications officer of Thompson Reuters. In my conversation with Alex, you're going to hear how his CEO, Steve Hasker, utilized the power of purpose to be a unifying factor to evolve the company from a portfolio orientation to an integrated operating company. Purpose unleashed the passion, the power, and the unlimited potential of what Thomson Reuters can become in the coming years and decades. It was a powerful strategy to drive Steve's vision to take the company from, yeah, a great content company to a content-driven technology company. Before we begin, I want to draw your attention to another amazing area at Thomson Reuters. The company hosts a global conference on climate change. It's called Reuters Impact. This year, it will be October 3 through 7. It has over 150 speakers, and the virtual part of this, it's free to anyone who wants to sign up. Um, it brings together world leaders, big business, and forward-thinking pioneers to inspire, drive action, and accelerate innovation towards the global economy's top priority, the climate emergency. It is built upon Thomson Reuters' Foundation of Trust, Reuters Impact is the only forum to put climate action at the center of mainstream business discussions over five interlinking themes, energy, the built environment, food and land, transportation, and finance. It's a conference that you shouldn't miss, and it's another added benefit of a company that understands and has uncovered its true reason to be inform the way forward. So let's get started. I just want to welcome you back to the show, Alex. Thank you, Carol. It's a privilege to be back. I have to say, by the way, you've had, I don't know how many, you've had way more than a hundred interviews now, right? But right. You have had some amazing guests. So um, congratulations, by the way, on, on Purpose 360. I appreciate that. Seriously, thank you for continuing to sort of fight the good fight. Oh, no. <laughs> and I will continue to do that. So, so thank you. So let's just uh, share with our listeners your background. And you've had a very interesting path. So let's just start there. Well, I mean, when we, when we spoke a few years back, Carol, um, I can't remember if I said this, but it certainly isn't the case that I grew up with, you know, like an ice packet pick in my hand or camping in national parks. Um, not, not a lot of that going on in, in Southeast London where I grew up. But um, similarly, I didn't have uh, previously direct experience working in the news or business information sector, but I decided to join Thomson Reuters after five amazing years with REI, uh, just right before the pandemic hit. My wife and I moved from Seattle to Toronto for this new adventure. 
um, driven in part by there's really a strong belief that we keep using the same hammers to hit the same nails, expecting different results. And that, and that progress isn't really possible if we don't have information that you can depend on. So it might seem like a really big shift from my previous role at REI, where I led uh, public policy, government affairs, comms, uh, sustainability, you know, philanthropy, and elements of the marketing piece, which we brought together because we really felt that REI was in this amazing position to use its community for good. Um, we called it brand stewardship and impact uh, back at back in in, in, in the REI days. Uh, and for international listeners, I'm sure you have many of them. If you don't know REI, just imagine Patagonia or the North Face, except as an outdoor retailer structured as a co-op with close to 20 million member owners and more than 80 years focused on strengthening the relationship between human beings and nature. So, you know, just just finishing this piece, kind of my background is a combination of the very start of my career was in, it's a dirty word in the US, but in the UK, it isn't lobbying. So I was a political, uh, I was focused on sort of political advocacy, understanding policy and trying to drive behavior change through the mechanisms of government in my first part of my career. But it's a combination of that and the creativity that you need to really engage the consumer's mindset or sort of individual's mindset to move issues. So my background is a combination really of, of that sort of policy orientation in the early years combined with um, a heavy focus on, on motivating people uh, to take on issues. Uh, and then most recently, of course, a much more focused in the last 10 or 15 years um, on, on sustainability. So at Thomson Reuters, I had a similar job, minus the marketing pieces, um, but for a business that's operating in 70 countries, not one like REI, and with customers in about 200 countries. Share with our listeners the business of Thomson Reuters. Who are the customers and, and what are your major products? Well, uh, Carol, the, I guess the simplest way to put this is if you think about all the Thomson Reuters businesses, they're all at heart information businesses that help professionals in different specialist sectors. And so we're very specifically, um, of course, there's media, lawyers, tax professionals, um, the folks inside corporations, particularly, particularly uh, general counsel offices and, and tax professionals within uh, corporations and, uh, and government. And so they're the big customer segments. If you take a big step back, most people know us, of course, the Reuters, which is the world's, arguably the world's uh, most global, most trusted news organization, certainly among the very top. So when I think of Thomson Reuters and I try to explain what that really means to people who don't fully understand how professional services or, or these sectors work, I, I think about the body and the body has got, um, it needs nutrients, it needs you know, oxygen, it needs all the right stuff to be delivered to you know, the brain and the lungs and the most important parts. And all of those parts need to be working properly at the same time. So each of those uh, segments that we just talked about, legal professionals and so on and so forth, they're making sure that the institutions that keep society healthy are working properly. And those are the folks that we um, provide our information uh, tools and technology to. And, and much of this is actually expressed in software and products. And, and it's an amazing organization and, and it is built on trust principles. And so before we get into your new purpose, can you share the trust principles and why they're so important to how the way 
Thomson Reuters operates. The whole of Thomson Reuters as an organization is governed by the trust principles. I mean, this is capital T, capital P. This is not a fluffy concept. This is built into our governance framework as an organization. And this is a set of um, principles that were created in 1941 to commit the Reuters news business to integrity, independence, and freedom from bias. I always need to be careful with the words I use about this, but they are dearly, dearly held by every person who has ever worked close to or with Reuters and Thomson Reuters. Now, what's, what's important, you mentioned this in the previous question, is Reuters and Thomson, the Thomson business, came together um, in, in, in 2008. And the, Tom, the trust principles, even though they were designed in 1941 principally for the Reuters business, apply now to the entirety of the Thomson Reuters Family of family of businesses, whether you're thinking about legal professionals, tax professionals, corporate professionals, and so on. So they're they're really really interesting if you're uh, sort of a geek about news and how news stays independent and unbiased. Um, and they very importantly mean that our news organisation cannot fall into the hands of any one interest group or faction, which is why Reuters News particularly is is known for being um, um, absolutely laser focused on reporting the facts and remaining unbiased. And we're going to in our show note, we'll post a link to those so that our um, listeners and, and um, can you know dive down into them because they're fascinating. Let's talk about the purpose. You're fairly new. This is certainly key to your entire position. So talk about the journey. So many of our listeners are saying our purpose, it's not quite right. It's not sharp enough. And there's so much to learn because of your years of Edelman work, then your REI work. But now here you are, Thomson Reuters, and you're kind of the new guy. And all of a sudden, and I remember because in Steve, your CEO's interview, he said he wanted to get into a change management journey. And this purpose was very much at the heart of it. So the, the statement itself is, is that Thomson Reuters' purpose is to inform the way forward through the pursuit of justice, truth, and transparency. Through the pursuit of justice, truth, and transparency. I mean, I guess the, I've been thinking about the folks who listen into your uh, show, your podcast, uh, Carol, and I'm imagining that some of them are, you know, really experienced at this work, and some are beginning on their journey, and some are in the middle of the journey, and you know, I reflect back on how it feels when you you start to take on the responsibility of trying to define sort of the values and ethics of an organization. And if you approach this with a um, it sort of a caval- in a cavalier fashion, thinking that you can kind of move in and out of a project, sign it off and then, you know, walk off into the distance, then you are doing a massive disservice to everybody who's worked before you and everybody who will come after you. So I find it nerve wracking even today, approaching these kinds of problems. And I think as I left um, the co-op, as I left REI, um, I was very conscious that I didn't understand truly in real depth the business that I was joining. I had never been a lawyer before, and I have not been a tax professional. And you have to fundamentally understand the customer to deeply understand what drives your people. But So it's a nerve-wracking experience. And so the headline, I guess, to your question, Carol, is with great care. You know, I approached this with great care. 
and great, great respect for the many thousands, tens of thousands of people who had shaped the culture as it was uh, shaped and, and to bring the organization to where, it, what, to where it is today. Job one was in fact not inventing something new. As one of the very senior editors within our organization stated, our task was to reveal the sculpture within the block of marble. It already existed. And how do you reveal that through really deep sensing and listening into an organization? So many key words there. How do you reveal? How do you discover? How do you go back in many cases as Unilever did to its, you know, its founder story with, you know, Lord Lever and, and what he did in Port Sunlight? So talk about the process because you did a lot of interviews, a lot of listening. Job one is understand the employee. Brand is built from the inside out. Impact is driven from the inside out. If you try and do it outside in, my view is that you'll fail uh, nine times out of 10. So um, we went to at least 800 employees. Those employees were not presented with product from an advertising agency or something like that. We asked them open-ended questions about what makes them proud of what they do, proud of their colleagues. And we asked them to articulate that in copy and to submit that through a system internally. And what's a bit different about Thomson Reuters, and let's come back to one of our businesses, our legal business of Thomson Reuters is built around understanding laws that are passed. So every single day, tens of thousands probably of developments in case law are happening. And our product, one in particular called Westlaw, is helping lawyers and judges and so on and so forth understand how law is changing. Now, one of the things we use to do that is natural language processing and AI technology. So we're using technology to interpret information and to filter information. And what I think was quite fun is we used that technology in understanding what our employees really felt about the organization and to strip bias out. So I know that you did these 800 employees and you asked for their insights and such. But you also interviewed 4,000 customers. Yeah, we, we did. Yeah. And that's a really important, you had both of those constituents. And so how did that, how was that done? And then how did, again, that information inform the ultimate purpose statement and direction? Well, in, in very practical terms, Carol, this wasn't classic message testing, right? We didn't cook something up in a room package it up prettily and then go and present it to people and deliver a score out of the other side. You know, what, what we thought would be more valuable in an age when all professionals and anybody really that's, that's paying attention is asking themselves some pretty profound questions about what contribution they make. We thought it would be more interesting to go to the professionals that we serve and ask them, what makes you proud of what you do and, and how do you see the value of your work in society? So we asked a fairly relatively open-ended question. And then you know, there was a little bit of, well, what do you think of Thomson Reuters in there? But mostly it was about what do they value in the contributions they make? And so, yes, as you say, 4,000 um, interviews with uh, legal professionals, tax professionals, and some of those in corporates. And the findings were just absolutely fascinating. And this actually maps to the consumer data that we have um, and that you obviously know a great deal about. More than 80% of them see that they are contributing in some form or another in a positive way, and they want to. But the research lead who did this project for us, she and I spoke a bit about it afterwards, and I made the observation that 
some of the answers read a little bit as though some of those professionals had never been asked the question in that way. And, and you know, I'm editorializing um, what was actually a quantitative study there, but I think we have in some of the professions in, in modern in modern economies, an opportunity to ask deeper questions of, of some of those professionals. And certainly that's one of the things that we found. So look, just, just, just finishing the research piece, there was, you know, the 800 employees or more deep, deep stakeholder engagement. This went up to the, you know, this board conversation, leadership and management conversation. It started from the ground up. We went to customers and, um, and in summary, I suppose that the approach that I didn't want us to take was the classic sort of go and lock yourself in a room for half a day, write a line, see how people <laughs> feel about it, and then, you know, distribute it from the top of the organization. That would dishonor both our, you know, the people who've come before us and, and also our customers. And I think it, it totally is living your trust principles. Let's talk about embedding it because I, I love that Steve talks about it's a journey. You know, what motivates and inspires us, what customers need most, and also for the long-term health of the communities that you serve. So I'm sure you've got a plan and you've got milestones along the way. So how is that going? What are you doing inside first? And then what are you doing outside? I don't think that this is, is terribly innovative, bluntly, but I think it's incredibly important. And I think job job one is give people space to talk about this stuff. Um, let it settle with them. I mean, we let our top 300 leaders sit with this for three months before we launched it. Just let people sit with the, with the thinking and, and let them think about how their what role really contributes. I just think that's job one. So I was actually listening, as I mentioned, sort of I thought the interview with Paul Palmer was so interesting because we sort of heard the journey that Unilever went on and how long it took for a holding company essentially to start to operate more as a single organization. And on a much smaller scale, in some ways, we're, we're doing a similar thing. We haven't, as Thomson Reuters, existed as one organization that long. And so some of what we're doing right now is actually just appreciating the different parts of our business and allowing people who might have previously sort of lived in a silo to look up and out and to appreciate what their colleagues do. And, and we're sort of unabashedly taking quite a long time to do that. We've got some really fun stuff going on that's hyper-tactical. You know, 10,000 Coffees is a great platform that connects employees with one another. And we've got, we've got all sorts of these sort of conversations over coffee taking place digitally around the company. We've got every single one of our leaders of our operating committee hosting those conversations. We're publishing blogs um, on the subjects that we're interested in, AI, blockchain, legal systems, you know, kind of fighting misinformation, this, that, and the other. And we're putting these, we're putting our people front and center because I think much of this work at the very, very start is to just celebrate people who do amazing things. And so that's not um, terribly sophisticated, but I think it's, again, it's respecting the people within the organization. It is sophisticated because you're not overdoing it. And you said something really important, Alex. You said you're just giving them the time to let it settle in because people need to embrace it on their own. They need to see in their own way how it connects to what they do on a daily basis. That's why Inform the Way is brilliant. I trust that this podcast will get others thinking and introduced to, again, Thomson Reuters because you're not the household word. 
albeit to your professionals that you service you are absolutely and that i'm informing the way is so exciting um i love that there's a call to action in um your materials it's really simple and it says consider how you can help inform the way forward and, and i i apologize i i cut it i truncate it and form the way and i drop forward and i'm sure forward is a really important word so can you give a, a story about i mean you, i love the ten thousand coffees brilliant is there an experience that you had perhaps you want a colleague or you heard something about steve and some other colleagues maybe with the board about again how it's settling in it's been received extremely well. Um, as, as I mentioned at the top, you can feel a bit of a sense of trepidation, uh, but we've taken a, at least a year and a half developing this. And I think pacing that work really helped. So people have kind of responded by saying, wow, I really never appreciated the totality of what our organization does when you add it up. I've been looking at my piece of the puzzle, but I hadn't been looking at the whole. And I've had lots of people have come forward and said that. We really haven't had much of the sort of organ rejection that you can find. And, and I was expecting, bluntly, I was expecting more, um, more pushback. But I, I really think that because we've expressed the voice of employees and the voice of our customers back to them, it, 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 feels, it feels both a step forward but also an articulation of what they were already proud of. So, um, you know, I, when, I, when you talk about stories, I actually went back in history versus today, and I think about an example of what it means to inform the way forward. And somebody came back to me and said, I didn't realise that Baron Paul Julius Reuter, who was the person that in, in the 1800s founded Reuters, um, was such an innovator. I didn't realise that he was involved in funding the laying of transatlantic cables, right, to transmit information not by carrier pigeon or boat, but under the sea. And if you think about the scale of that innovation in those days, it's kind of mind-boggling. The same is true of our of, of Roy Thompson, who was the you know on, on the other side, on the Thompson side, just a tireless innovator and entrepreneur. And I think what we've helped people do is discover that spirit of entrepreneurism. And again, I think that it's the the studied way that you approach this, the listening, the unveiling it and going on a discovery, continuing to discover. You know, you found the essence, but the essence was uncovered. And of course, your trust principles informed. But you are the the pace at which you're allowing this to truly be uncovered and discovered. And I love going back to the history. Because I know that one of Steve's goals when he came into the organization was to, it was separate groups and to oper- make it one operating company. And so, again, brilliant to utilize a true purpose journey to be that consolidator, to bring people together, but to allow them within a framework, you know, inform the way forward. Can you talk about? Any conversations you've had with any of your colleagues about the deeper connections that they are making and how that may be actually accelerating or igniting a greater sense of connection to the company and excitement, too. Yeah, there's a long list of examples of people who are very tenured in the organization. They may have 15, 20, 30 years. And I I really want to make sure that it's clear this is a 
an effort across multiple groups. And so they're coming forward to colleagues who are involved in this in other functions. They're not coming to me necessarily, but they're saying, you've helped me re rediscover my, rediscover my drive, rediscover my appreciation, rediscover my sense of what's possible. And the conversations that are cutting through to me the most are those And it's fascinating because you have your customers in law and accounting and such. It's a codified approach, you know, law and accounting and and all of the structures. But it's fascinating that you're saying the purpose is allowing them to look at the creative side, not breaking the law, but thinking about new products and innovations and such that they can service each other better or they can service their businesses and their and their customers and and i i'm seeing you know i just you know i i hope our listeners if you haven't heard the paul pullman interview you should go listen to that because so much what what paul's talking about is unleashing the potential when you when you know the purpose and you live the purpose it allows your people to truly unleash their potential it sounds exactly what's going on at thomson reuters i certainly hope so well, I, I'm sure sure that it is. How about surprises, Alex? Well, I talked about using um, AI and natural language processing to interpret the submissions from hundreds of employees. And as we analyzed the language that people used, what we actually did is we then played back synthesized language to the same group. And, and then we had them sort of vote on language that appealed to them and didn't appeal to them. And there were some concepts, actually, that we going into the into the listening effort really thought would be slam dunks, and they weren't. And one of those was fairness. So as a concept, you think that fairness is something that everybody can buy into, not no matter what their their political predispositions or, or, or prejudices might be. Um, but it, fairness had a very negative reaction, and and we think that the, one of the reasons that fairness was not well received by what is arguably what is actually admittedly a very analytic, quite heady group of people who work within TR, is I think they immediately understood that fairness is a it's extremely flexible concept. It's quite difficult to pin down, and it's hard to know exactly how you can drive to it to an outcome of that nature. So I was a bit surprised to see some of the language that I intuitively would have, intuitively would think of as a bit, you know, motherhood and apple pie. 
um, not being as well received. And maybe that's why. Maybe it didn't have enough edge. And how many countries do you operate in around the globe? Uh, well, we've got operations in 70, but we're, we're working with customers in 200. So this had to work on a global basis. So how did you work that magic? It's the same principle, a deep listening. And, you know, we got more participation from some countries than others. And I, one, one of the learnings, and I'm sure that everybody will think about this, one of the learn, learnings is which languages do you conduct these conversations in? Now, the majority of our employees are entirely fluent in, in English. It's a, it's a first language. Um, and that certainly is, of course, the case when, when you think about our, um, uh, our news reporters, but it's also the case in many of the other parts of the organization. We, I think, could have done a better job in the, on the front end building communities in some of the locations that receive slightly less support from the center. I would like to see more of that as we go forward. So just to sort of name an area where I think we might have been more thorough, but um, you have to make choices. And um, and we were fairly confident that we had decent rep- representation from people who understood those communities well. So, I, you know, I would actually not mark us sort of five out of five on on the degree to which we we truly managed to tap in right at the beginning to those local audiences. But as we started to socialize, We've, we've been really deliberate about that. So teams all over the world. In fact, some of the some of the teams outside the United States are those that have really embraced this with the greatest sense of sort of passion and focus. And um, that's been great to see. But it also tells us that our intuition was pretty good about who to select in the, you know, in those 800 employees who were taking part up front. And how did you select them? Well, a lot of it was voluntary, but we reached out to all of our business resource groups and we reached out to every segment that we operate in, so meaning our go-to-market segments. And we also reached out to every single one of our supporting functions. So we were recruiting across the matrix, if that makes sense. What was the role of your board in all of this? Validation, pushing and pulling. And certainly the board had line of sight quite a good degree in advance of, or good deal in advance of launch. So um, as you well know, board conversations stay in the boardroom, but um, we had excellent challenge from from extremely um, experienced business leaders, uh, board chair, uh, chairs of various committees, um, and good discussions around this. So I certainly went through, we certainly went through several cycles, uh, listening to that feedback and addressing it. Um, and certainly a few adjustments were made along the way as well, which I think sharpened our thinking and made it bolder. And how many times did you discuss this with the board? I'm not sure I would have a, a number, um, less, than te- less than 10, more than two. Okay, <laughs> that's fair. But it wasn't just, this is what it is. It was, you did bring them along the way so you could get their feedback. Absolutely. And and did they have any sort of question? I mean, Steve was new. Steve was, you know, and, and he inherited the company. It was like, you know, two days, five days before the world shut down. And he, and he said he had to make that really hard decision about, but it wasn't that hard because you're so employee focused that 25,000, of your colleagues were going to work from home. Um, he did say he didn't have all the information. Did you have the right technology that could work at home? But that's a tough, uh, a, a tough assignment <laughs> as your first role of, of a CEO of such a storied company. About a year into it, probably even six months into it, he decided to go on this purpose journey. So I'm just curious, was there anything special that happened during COVID um, that helped him come to the decision we're going to go through this significant, if you want to call it change management or introspection or strategic 
analysis to drive us forward. Was there anything that, that struck him? I mean, that you know of? Well, Steve's spoken publicly a number of times about his experience in the first six to 12 months of being a new CEO to a very storied company with a pandemic hitting you, right? This is true of many, but I don't think there are lots of CEOs that joined quite, <laughs> quite a week before that happened. Um, but he's spoken a good deal about just how clear the pride of our employees was in the way that we deal with uncertainty and the way that we are an organization you can truly depend on at times when the chips are down. And, you know, I think I'm paraphrasing here and I'm always reluctant to put words in the mouths of CEOs as you might appreciate, <laughs> but, but if you take this as a, as a paraphrase with a caveat and an underscore, um, he essentially said that this is an organization of people who absolutely love what they do. They absolutely love serving their customer and they really see the role they play as being vitally important. So you see this outpouring of desire to be supportive at a time when things are really bad. And examples of that would be looking at our tax business. You have professionals that are working harder than they thought they were able to in order to help their customers interpret the CARES Act. Right? We all know what the CARES Act was and the Stimulus Act. But small businesses were facing into right, really scary times. And you have the stimulus checks that are and stimulus that's available, but how do you interpret whether you can actually use that or not? How do you help your employees through this time? What policies can you put in place as, as people have to go on furlough? And our folks just moved en masse in helping our customers address those issues. And what Steve has often reflected is that he was really moved by the sort of the force of that, of that passion to support others. And this is conjecture, but I think that the experience of that employee passion was probably what struck him coming into the organization. He knew that we were number one or number two in our own markets, that we have great franchises, that we've got a solid business model, and that we have a lot of opportunity from a vision standpoint. But you only really know once you get into an organization what your employees truly care about. And I think that was a major factor. Certainly. So as a CEO needs to do, he's got to unleash, he's got to find that what is the unlock, the great unlock to take that core um, attribute, that the, the powerful attribute and passion of his people and pride and, and to unleash it even further. Do you recall the first conversation you had with them about the potential of going on this purpose discovery? That's a good question. Can I, I don't know that I can recall the first discussion. I'll try and remember that. What I what I do remember is my first two or three conversations with Steve as he entered the business, and I really distinctly remember what people said their impression of him was. Highly empathetic, very straightforward, you know, extremely direct and honest, a very, very good listener, someone who deeply understood the business and the customer. And these themes just came through again and again and again and again and again. I also, in my first few conversations with Steve, got a very strong sense of his vision for what we could be as an organization. And you mentioned the words before, as an operating company, not a holding company, as an operating company. When we really combine the skills and the expertise of our, of our people, and we think about the total contribution of the business to professionals, institutions, and society, that that's a special thing. And that came through very clearly. I don't think in those first few conversations that was being labeled as purpose, but 
if you if that makes sense. But there's a deep deep intuitive sense of of the power of the organisation and the contribution of the organisation. Our responsibility to help people understand that um, as employees. Steve's a very very big one on talent and 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 making sure that we grow our talent. And so I do think that the work that we've done on purpose is a major component of that. I'd like to read a portion of a letter that your CEO, Steve Hasker, sent to employees on January 27th, 2022. And it wasn't long, but he was talking about unveiling, introducing the purpose. And he said, I was struck by a unique privilege we all have to serve people whose work genuinely matters. And I want to uncover why genuinely matters, because I think our listeners need to understand some of your products and then, you know, the lawyers and the accountants and such that, that you are serving as part of your constituents. This is especially true against the background of continued uncertainty, erosion of trust and seismic shifts in how we all live and work. When our customers succeed, justice and taxation systems, global commerce and news and information ecosystems thrive. They are the bedrock of functioning societies. As a content-driven technology company powering the world's most informed professionals, Thomson Reuters' role in this equation is significant. By unveiling our company purpose today to inform the way forward, we acknowledge this role while uniting our commercial and societal responsibilities to increase knowledge, to act with courage and integrity, and to pursue justice, truth, and transparency. Those words, one, I know that they were very, very carefully selected, but I love some portions of it because you're talking about acknowledging the role the unique and serious and genuine role that Thomson Reuters plays with societies and your customers. There's also a key point in here for those listening about the coming together of the commercial side of the business and recognizing the daily, probably the minute by minute role that you play in society. So can you elaborate on any of that, um, Alex? Because it is, I've never really heard a CEO in a way, you know, wrap the mantle of responsibility that is so aligned with their business in their purpose work. What Steve wrote there, I think, reflects very deeply what my experience of my CEO, like what he believes and has experienced. And that is, he's laser focused on our customers, laser focused on our customers and a um, and understand deeply the importance of a properly functioning just, justice system with legal professionals who are equipped to do more thinking. And our products help them make really, really good decisions about really, really complex problems. And we need all of that to work. Like I said before, in sort of the body needs to function effectively, we need all of that to be happening properly. I know on your website, you're very proud of having really uh, fascinating stories of your um, colleagues in, you know, really living the purpose. Again, inform the way forward. One of the cases on your website um, was um, an intervention 
that uh, Thomson Reuters has done, and they're very public about it in terms of um, catching, basically, identifying and catching sex traffickers that prey on um, people who go to the Super Bowl and other other big sports events because they want to have fun. And that was shocking to me. Can you explain what that means and the role of Thomson Reuters in that? Uh, Carol, I'll admit that this this shocked me as well, and I wasn't aware of the association between uh, the Super Bowl and and that type of activity before I joined Thomson Reuters. And this is the kind of work when you talk a lot, Carol, about how business, when it's acting with purpose, it's it's actually about what it fundamentally does as a business offering, as a commercial offering to organisations that really is truly living purpose. So in this instance, one part of our business and works particularly with government helps to tackle human trafficking and sex trafficking in particular um, through the provision of, of tools and information um, that make it harder for those bad actors to do what they do. And so when you go back to the Miami Super Bowl, um, the, our customers were involved in breaking up one of these sex trafficking rings. And I mean, we are, we are talking, um, you know, about probably some of the, the toughest stuff uh, for people to truly kind of imagine we have an amazing leader who came out of the White House and was focused on establishing um, the U.S. first program tackling uh, uh, human trafficking and sex trafficking. Um, and, you know, she talks in very compelling terms indeed about the work that we do with those with some of those agencies. But um, it's not difficult. It's not an easy topic, as you might imagine, Carol. And it's um, and it's a privilege to meet the, the employees who are involved in that type of work. But, but it's very serious. And. It's a problem, unfortunately, that's growing, not shrinking. Yeah, and, and kudos to you to put it on the website front and center so that, you know, your, again, colleagues can understand the critically important work that you're doing day in and day out. I'd like to switch to um, just another question, and it has to do with inform the way forward. That is your purpose. Everyone I ever talk to says, well, how did you come, how did you write that? I mean, we've talked about all the research you've done, which was painstaking, 800 employees, 4,000 customers, lots of questions, taking the time to really let it set, you know, sink in and, and be very considered. Ultimately, at the end of the day, someone's got to take a pen to paper. So how did that come to be? It's that question, right? Ultimately, who made the call and, and how did it get written? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm always a bit coy about these questions because as with my experience at REI, very, very often the ideas are deeply embedded in an organization. They've been articulated in lots of different places. The question is, did you open the right drawer? Did you open the right door? Did you, did you listen closely enough? Um, with, with Thomson Reuters, it is the case that, um, as I mentioned, people wrote in their own words what they thought the value of this organization was. And we had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of lines of copy that people contributed. And I think I mentioned we sort of applied AI to this to make sure we stripped out bias. Ultimately, Inform the Way Forward reflects themes that came through very, very strongly. And, you know, I wouldn't name a single individual there. We had, um, we had some really great partners. We had some amazing people internally who just had deep insight about what made sort of our employees tick, employees who'd been there for a long time. And, of course, some of the rest of us were new. And we're bringing a perspective about what the world needs now. So I know it seems like a bit of a dodge, but it really was a collaborative effort in the end. And I think that you see Inform the Way Forward is a 
It's ex- what I like about it is it's extremely succinct. Reuters is known for brevity. Um, it is it is it is simple. It's it's I think memorable. And when you start to unpack it, it the meaning becomes clearer. When you start to unpack the idea that look, the world is facing some intractable problems. You know, we have to face into those challenges. And the question is, are we willing to ask ourselves, you know, what more does it take? And the, the essence of Inform the Way Forward is to say we might not have every answer, but we're going to be part of the solution. That, that's wonderful. And no, you aren't being coy. I, I think the best solutions are collaborative with lots of minds. And I'm thrilled that you had hundreds of uh, different responses to choose. And you applied the shoemaker's kids in this case had shoes because you imp- you applied your your AI capability to strip out the bias. That's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. So so I'll have to say that Inform the Way Forward now is going to be one of my most favorite purpose. Um, yes. Yeah, at, yeah. If you can see this listeners, he's he, Alex is clapping. Um, he, he knows I give lots of speeches and I get uh, my favorite uh, purpose, not just statements, but you're, you're, it's your purpose. You're living your purpose. And so I will talk about this case a lot. Thank you. And, you know, look, I, I have communications in my title, right? And so I'm always conscious that people can interpret this type of thing as an exercise in in branding, an exercise in packaging. And I certainly have um, spent a lot of my career pushing back against that. And my hope is that Inform the Way Forward is as much a mindset as it is anything. Um, And if we can make it a mindset, then we have half a chance of tackling some of these challenges. And Carol, the, the, the last thing I'll just sort of say on, on Inform the Way Forward is we were also really deliberate about articulating the outcome that we're working towards. And the, and the outcome, as, as we crystallized it, is a more understanding, trusting world for all. If, if we cannot arrive at a place where people will listen to one another and respect one another and explore problems in a balanced way together, if we can't do that, then how are we supposed to tackle some of these huge issues that, of course, you've explored in great detail on, on Purpose 360? So that's the sentiment underpinning this. And we know that it's hard work, um, but as you described on whether it's Super Bowl or you know, dealing with human trafficking or whether we're tackling misinformation, whether we're dealing with issues like um, you know, the implementation of the recent SEC rules um, you know, and guidance that are coming out, businesses need to be part of it. And and our and our aspiration to inform the way forward is is basically saying we're gonna we're gonna step in and we're gonna be part of the solution. I thought that your comment very succinctly stated it's a mindset. It is not a strap line. Exactly. And I think that um, actually we have some new research that uh, that we were just talking with our research firm today that's coming out, which is about thank heaven that purpose is is becoming more mature. And that the C-suite understands, beginning to understand, it's a mindset. It's a way of being. And it's a way of aligning your business with really big issues or little issues, depending on where, where you're coming from. Um, so thank you. That, that was just brilliant as well. One of the products I was intrigued about was Westlaw Edge. 
So can you explain how that amazing product, it's really driven a lot by AI and such, helps lawyers in terms of um, really sharpening their arguments and they hope that they will win their uh, their cases? And I'm in full, full disclosure, I was not trained as a lawyer and didn't practice law in, in the US or the UK or Canada or New Zealand or any of these places where we operate. So, you know, I've learned about West Orange as part of um, being at Thomson Reuters, but this is an incredible engine behind essentially the entire legal apparatus, particularly in countries where um, the way that the legal system is um, is designed uh, is similar. And so Westlaw Ridge is, um, it, it is a huge repository of legal information. And in its simplest terms, it's a legal research tool, but it's really advanced because it has AI systems built into it that help every lawyer. It doesn't matter if you're training to be a legal professional or you're you know, new in practice in uh, a law firm or you're working in a corporate setting or you're a judge. It helps you understand the state of play on any given issue and any given minute of the day, and it's constantly updating. So it's a live repository of, of, of the state of the rule of law, really which underpins, of course, um, uh, democracies uh, and, and all functioning societies. So it's an amazing piece of kit. As you say, it's, a, it's an engine. So it allows you through research to understand not only the, the legal precedent, but also I understand that the cases that the judge that you're going before um, has adjudicated so that you have a sense at least of the individual who will be hearing the case. I, I think that that's, uh, that's amazing so that your the legal profession can then truly take the essence of the of their experience based on having the research and, and knowing the arguments and planning their arguments. So that, that's an amazing product. And just to be super clear about this is like whether you're talking about family law or environmental law or the law that looks at, you know, um, how um, certain types of crimes affect discriminated groups, you have got at your fingertips a way to understand how all of these cases have been tried the arguments that were made, the outcomes, um, and you've got that at your fingertips. And, and this is just a huge advance in the way that the legal profession operates compared with, you know, just having reams and reams of paper on your desk and having to search all of this manually. I love it. It releases the capacity for people to think. Speaking of that, um, you, Thomson Reuters, does a lot of pro bono work um, in, in terms of especially social justice. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? And I'm assuming that you're that it really it, it energizes your employees, your your colleagues to do that kind of uh, work. That happens in, in two parts. Um, there is a big pro bono program within the company. And then there is an amazing pro bono uh, um, uh, program that's housed within the Thomson Reuters Foundation. I'll talk about both. So within Thomson Reuters, and, and legal is only one vertical, but it's our biggest business. So we have, I think, something close to 1,500 lawyers employed within Thomson Reuters. We have some serious legal professionals within our organization. And every year they give up a huge amount of their time to help people and nonprofits on topics like this can be everything from, I mean, pick the topic and we probably do some pro bono work on this. This existed way before I joined the organization, um, but it is 
deeply embedded. It's it's a, it's an integral part of the way that, the, in particular, the legal professionals within our organization operate. And the stories of what they do are really amazing. One, one example of that just from last year is Thomson Reuters was involved in, um, in helping to facilitate the creation of a group called the Large Law Firm Anti-Racism Alliance. And this is an initiative that has attracted some of the very best lawyers from some of the very best institutions in the U.S. and beyond. And what they're looking at collaboratively is how do you identify and eliminate old laws that, un- that unintentionally create systemic bias within the legal system? And so our pro bono program will help our people internally contribute to those issues. On the Thomson Reuters Foundation side, which is a, an independent charity, it's uh, headquartered in London, amazing organization focused on media literacy, inclusive economies and human rights. Housed within the Thomson Reuters Foundation is uh, trust law. Trust law is, is the world's largest pro bono legal program. And so this is an enormous network of of lawyers who are helping uh, on important topics. Um, and I, you know, listing them would be um, an exercise uh, that was <laughs> a sort of futile exercise because the list is so long, um, but some truly amazing nonprofits benefit from the expertise of the world's best lawyers at thanks to Trust Law. I'm, I'm very proud to be associated with uh, and so are our employees. Oh my God, this, this conversation is getting better and better. We'll, we'll have to have you back for part two in about a year and just see how the, how the discovery and the journey is going. So as we begin to wind this down, Alex, um, we always like you to share, you know, if a, a colleague of yours, you know, in the role that you have, multinational company says, you know, we're considering really going on this deep discovery for our purpose. What are the three, two or three things you would say to that person to get them going in the right direction? I think number one is you don't need people who've done this before to be in the engine room. One of the things I'm most proud of, and there are several people on my team I could, and other teams I could name this, they'd never done this before, but they understood. And they said, do you know what? We need this. I'm going to step into this. I'm a bit scared of <laughs> what if it goes wrong. But I think there's something really important about bringing people who deeply understand the organization, deeply care about it, may not have the technical expertise as purpose brand people or as impact professionals, and give them runway to really think about what it takes to capture what's magic in the organization. That's number one. Um, that has been probably the highlight of my time at Thompson Reuters so far is seeing people respond to that. Um, and that's about putting trust in your colleagues. Second, I think this comes through in every conversation that you've had that I've listened to on Purpose 360. This isn't the business of inventing something out of thin air that suddenly adds a sheen to an organization that makes you feel good. You've got to unsurface something that's deeply embedded. And the spirit of founders is an important touch point. The spirit of what the customer actually buys from you is an important touch point. You've got to think deeply about that and you've got to listen deeply. And and if people don't have the time to do that, wait. Good point. Wait until you do have the time. Uh, And then I think probably point three, and, and I'll say this for myself, is feel a bit choppy at times where you're like, is this actually going to 
resonate with people. I'm not sure. And you can, you can end up with some self-doubt. Um, it's super important to listen to your intuition. And it's really important to seek out critics, critics along the way and bring those critics into the inner circle and help them be your counselors. Because if you find the most critical, most skeptical people and you are willing to share your sort of vulnerability about whether this will resonate or not, um, you are more than likely going to get a straight answer from them. And without that, you can end up doing this work in a bubble. And I think that's very risky. Three really, really good, important points. As to critics, were they customer critics, employee critics, NGO activists? I mean, how did you identify the critics? Carefully. Uh, I mean, <laughs> good answer. Good answer. I, the majority of them, I'd say 80% of the critics I picked for myself were tenured, highly commercial employees and leaders, you know, at the director and up to C, up to C-suite level, well, up to board level, I suppose. I, we certainly selected carefully a few very experienced customers who'd been on their purpose journeys um, and had done a good job of it. I won't name them, but um, if you're listening, thank you very much. And, <laughs> Great. And, okay. they, and, they, and they shared all of that things that they got wrong and what they really thought of us as a business and, and didn't. Um, we didn't spend much time with, with NGOs and activists, I must, I must say. Really important guidance and counsels. So thank you. So I always like to give our guests the last word. So was there anything else you'd like to add before we have to sadly um, end our discussion today? We've got to maintain our optimism. Uh, I find it difficult even now when you think about the scale of the challenges and the layering effect of challenges one on top of the other. Um, you know, I sometimes get concerned that people are going to kind of down tools and say it's all too much. But we have to maintain our optimism. Uh, we have that within our control. And if you're if you're struggling within an organization to maintain that optimism, have a list of people next to your desk that make you feel a bit brighter and a bit more positive and give them a call when you need them. That, that's what I would say. <laughs> that, that's great advice. That's really, really great advice. So Alex Thompson, amazing conversation, as was the first one. Um, you've connected a lot of the dots. You shared a lot of your wisdom. So we really appreciate it. I am going to make, if you say yes, um, I'd love to make an appointment to have you back in a year. And uh, is that a yes? That's a yes. Okay, great. I wanted to hear that. I was smiling. Yeah, he's, yeah. And that um, we're going to see how, how this is really enhancing the business. Um, in an, in an aligned way, uh, it, it's it's a brilliant purpose statement, but it's not a statement. It's the way you live, um, and it's the way you breathe, and that the way you relate to your employees and your customers. So kudos to you. I love it. It's great. It was worth waiting for this for this interview. So to our listeners, um, you, well, this has been a great conversation. Um, Alex did suggest that you perhaps listen to some other podcasts so you can knit them together um, as you are going on your purpose journeys. And if you like this podcast, and I hope you did, please go to wherever you uh, sign up to listen and rate us because we want to be one of the top business podcasts. I'm on a journey to get to get those five stars. Alex, you'll love this. We're interviewing Alan Murray from Fortune Magazine. Wow. Um, yeah, he's got a new book coming out 
cool. Um, and it's about um, capitalism and it's his search for the soul of business, which is going to be, uh, it's called Tomorrow's Capitalist, the search, my search for the soul of business. So that's going to be a really good one. And if our listeners have any suggestions, we're really trying to get people that are different and have a point of view and they're not scared to talk about it. And of course you're not, um, send us some suggestions and cause we always want to get better because purpose is here to stay. You know, I end my, um, speeches with this line. What is the power of your purpose? It's no longer if it's the how, um, and we had the power of Thomson Reuters purpose is extraordinary. And, and I'm so thrilled by the way, just to say that, Steve and yourself, Alex, that you have worked together with so many of your colleagues because what you do is so important to justice and and the functioning of our society. So thank you so much. We'll have you back in a year. And please, again, to our listeners, give us feedback and give us, you know, great ratings. So for Purpose 360, it's Carol Cohn. And um, for all of you listening, wherever you are, have a great day. <laughs>